Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty, Hour 2 now underway. I've got kind of a special treat in store for you this hour. We're going to talk about how to avoid swallowing war propaganda. Now, I know it's all right. Here he goes off on the anti-war kick. But I I will tell you, in all honesty, the the thing that frustrates me the most when, you know, the, the... when the winds of war blow through our fair country. Um, no, it's it's discouraging to me how people who are rational and, and, and even principled in normal situations, you introduce the specter of war or at least, you know, some kind of military conflict. And it's just so much easier to sway them or to propagandize them or to to otherwise herd them in a predictable direction. And by the way, this is this is nothing new. It's not like, oh, yeah, and it all started, you know, when Donald Trump was elected. This has been historically an aspect of human nature that uh, leaders have have understood for many, many years. Now, some were actually honest about it. And I can't remember if it was uh, if it was Goring or if it was um, Goebbels. I want to say it was Goring who talked about how, well, of course, you know, no. The average guy doesn't want to go fight a war, but what you have to do is convince him there's an enemy at the gates and you get people whipped up into this sense of fear and anger and distrust. And, you know, pretty soon, hey, they'll they'll voluntarily come down and sign up. I want to come kill the Hun. I want to kill, you know, whatever. It's it's an art form. And if you want to see through bad arguments, distractions and euphemisms to see what really is taking place You've got to be willing to exert yourself. And it's not easy because, uh, you know, it can take so many different forms. Right now, there are people just straining at the gnat of, well, you know, there was, you know, there was uh, Iran furnished parts and things to uh, Iraqis in in their insurgency that were used to kill U.S. servicemen. And, you know, good U.S. citizens are like, well, hey, that was our that's our team and you can't do that to us. And, you know, they get angry and bent out of shape. But don't stop to think about why were those U.S. servicemen in Iraq in the first place? What was the role that they were playing there? And I want to make very clear, I'm not I'm not questioning the the intent of those guys who and gals who in good faith put on their nation's uniform and and swore their oath of service. But the people who sent them there sent them as invaders. They sent them as occupiers. And I'm not trying to minimize their deaths. They were tragic any way you look at it. But what the heck did they expect? What did the decision makers expect? You put invaders and occupiers into a country and there's going to be resistance. There is no presumption that, well, because we came in waving the American flag, people are going to understand we're the good guys. And as much as it may hurt to hear this, we're not the good guys if we invade or occupy a country under false pretenses. If our military is being used in a preemptive fashion, a line has been crossed. And it's a moral line between right and wrong, not just what's expedient and what works in the real world. Machiavelli would love to separate right and wrong from this question. But the ultimate truth... The ultimate reality all of us have to face will come down to how did we handle matters of right and wrong? And this is where people lose it. 
So I'm going to share with you this article by Nathan Robinson. This is on CurrentAffairs.org. It's an excellent article. And it uses this, uh, this recent uh, you know, killing of an Iranian general in Iraq as an example of some of the ways that you and I can be fed information that seems plausible, that seems like, well, that may be reasonable, but also can be used to distract us or deceive us in ways that we weren't counting on. And if you're not looking for it or if, you're, if, you're, you, know, if you get emotionally involved, particularly when the flag comes out, it's easy to get played. All right, I'm going to take a caller here before I dive into this article. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hold on, Brian. Let me let me jump in this truck over here. I can't hear over this big saw cut. Okay. You know, I, I, I've learned with this whole tax thing and getting signatures, there's a lot of people out there that aren't registered to vote. That's one of the big problems right there. Nobody's engaged in what goes on in their government. Everyone has an opinion, but nobody's engaged. That's why these problems persist. Why do you think they're not engaged, though? I mean, let's, let's, let's flesh that out. Why wouldn't they want to be engaged? Because they've given up. Most of them. Or, or they just don't have the time to educate themselves, or they don't care about where their tax dollars go. I guess they don't care about being enslaved. What if it may, what if, and I'll grant you, any of those excuses you just gave may be very valid excuses. What if there are people out there, though, who don't get engaged in politics because it makes them feel dirty? Well, if more people would get engaged, you could correct that problem. What do you do when you get dirty, Brian, at the end of the day? Well, I, (laughs) I shower off, of course. Bingo. But it, but but yeah. politics is a different kind of dirt. Uh, we're talking about the kind of dirt that, that stains a person's soul. And and look, I and it's only I, that I underst- way because we've allowed it to get that way. I completely understand that. But here's here's where you and I we we may differ on this. I believe the cure for it is for each of us to first of all get our own lives in order and get the dirt out of our own souls, so to speak. And by that, there's, there are things we won't tolerate. We won't tolerate, you know, the graft or corruption or, um, you know, deception on the part of uh, people who are in political leadership. Well, how do you, you know, you, you, you want, that's a great analogy of, of cleaning up your own act, but you're participating in every day in every form. You're being taxed out your eyeballs for everything you do. All, all this stuff, these people overseas in these foreign countries, it's all to back that keep that currency being traded in that dollar. Keep those that lobbyist money coming into these campaign contributions for, from the gun makers, the bullet makers, the boot makers, the bulletproof makers, the helmets, the night vision goggles, the drone makers, all, the robotic makers, the explosives, mm-hmm. the tanks makers. It, 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 all that money comes in through to these politicians through campaign contributions. And what do they got to do? Return the favor to these people that have funded their campaign contributions by keeping us in all of these conflicts all around the world. I don't disagree with you at all on that. And and like I said, the, the only thing I'm suggesting here, though, is I don't think we can affect top-down change. It's got to come from the bottom up, and that starts by being the kind of person the, the kind of person who cannot be co-opted. And I think you're that kind of person. At least I hear that kind of fire in your voice that you're, you're not somebody who is going to be schmoozed out of, come on, Rob, just you give in a little bit and go along to get along. I think you're, you're 
probably as dedicated a freedom fighter as anybody I've talked to. Well, you know, it's just frustrating to watch this go on and get worse and worse. And, you know, here we have 6,000, 7,000 signatures, and we need 116,000 total. Can I ask what you something? That, what does that tell you? What does that tell you, Brian? Can I ask you something? Because I did. I was looking at actually some headlines about this earlier today and thinking about what you had said last time we talked about how, how few people there seem to be. I was under the impression that there's a lot of people jumping on board. But one of the articles I saw, in fact, I think it was uh, is either Fox 13 out of Salt Lake or Deseret News said, well, there's only 500 verified signatures and they need 100,000. And I had to ask myself, is the media playing lapdog to those in power? Because they do like to be cozy with those in power. They kind of get a contact high from it. This is from the lieutenant governor's office, reported Monday that 1,647 signatures have been verified by county clerks. Organizers of the referendum said in the statement Monday that they have collected 6,486 so far. Wow. There's your information. Dang, that's, yeah, that's, that's fallen pretty short. So I, I, either, either we just have a lot of people working that are going to be benefiting from this tax rate increase, Oh, we just got a lot of people that don't care. And that's why we're in the boat we're in. People are saying, what have we done to our country? I keep seeing this on Facebook. You've steered away from the Constitution. Read Section 8. We're only supposed to have a Navy and a militia. Any other armies that are created by Congress need to be funded for only two years. So technically, the Marines... The Army, the National Guard, all that stuff in a legal division of government that we're taxed on, that never goes away. Yeah, and it's getting worse. No, you've, you've spelled it out. Wake hey. up, America! Wake up! Okay. See you, buddy. Hey, thanks so much. Good timing, too. We're coming up on the break here. Okay, part of what it comes down to, at least the part that I'm going to focus on when we return... How do we get propagandized? How do we not recognize when some politician is pulling our leg or otherwise trying to schmooze us into doing something we don't want to do? They'll get us full of adrenaline. They'll get us all hyped up like a like a really sleazy used car salesman. Come on, come on, just sign. Don't think about it. Just do it. One, two, three. Sign. Sign on the dotted line. Politicians may be a little more subtle, but the end result is the same. We end up with things we didn't really want and we didn't really consent to, but somehow we went along with. It is frustrating. We'll talk about how to avoid being propagandized when we continue. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm going to put the phone calls on hold here for just a moment here because I, I, I will get to calls here in a few moments. But I want to delve into this marvelous article, How to Avoid Swallowing War Propaganda. And this is not just, hey, let's deconstruct, you know, the story of this General uh, um, Suleimani being uh, killed last week. But uh, more, if there is greater conflict ahead, this would be a great time to think about how propaganda works and to train ourselves to avoid accidentally swallowing it. Now, the article by Nathan J. Robinson talks about how the Iraq War, the bloodiest and costliest U.S. foreign policy calamity of the 21st century, happened in part because the population of the United States was insufficiently cynical about its government and got caught up in a wave of nationalistic fervor. 
I agree. I was right there. I watched it happen. And it was, it was the first time in my life that I really was like, I can't ride that wave. Same thing happened with World War I. Same thing happened with the Vietnam War. And so they want to make sure here with this article that we don't end up accidentally repeating the kinds of talking points that make war more likely. So these are a few of the basic lessons about war propaganda. And this first one is a doozy. Things are not true because a government official says them. Now, the author here says, I don't mean to treat you as stupid by making such a basic point, but plenty of journalists and opposition party politicians do not understand this point's implications. So it needs to be said over and over. What happens in the lead up to war is that government officials make claims about the enemy and then those claims appear in newspapers. U.S. officials say Saddam poses an imminent threat. And then in the public consciousness, the U.S. officials say part disappears so that the claim is taken for reality without without ever having really been scrutinized. Now, this happens because newspapers are incredibly irresponsible and believe that so long as you attach experts say or the president says to a claim, you're off the hook when people end up believing it because all you did was relay the fact that a person said a thing. You didn't say it was true. That's the approach the New York Times took to the Bush administration's allegations in the lead up to the Iraq war. And it meant that false claims could become headline news just because a high ranking U.S. official said them. So in the context of Iran, let's take a quote from uh, Mike Pence. Vice President Mike Pence tweeted this about Qasim Soleimani. Suleimani assisted in the clandestine travel to Afghanistan of 10 of the 12 terrorists who carried out the September 11th terrorist attacks in the United States. Suleimani was plotting imminent attacks on American diplomats and military personnel. The world is a safer place today because Suleimani is gone. End quote. Now, it's possible, given these tweets, to publish the headline, Suleimani plotting imminent attacks on American diplomats, says Pence. That headline is totally true, is technically true. But... You should not publish that headline unless Pence provides some supporting evidence, because what will happen in the discourse is that people will link to your news story to prove that Soleimani was plotting imminent attacks. So to see how unsubstantiated claims get spread, let's think about the Afghanistan hijackers bit. David Harsiani of the National Review defends Pence's claim about Soleimani helping the hijackers. Harsanyi cites the 9-11 Commission report saying that the 9-11 Commission report concluded Iran aided the hijackers. Now get this, the report does indeed say that Iran allowed free travel to some of the men who went on to carry out the 9-11 attacks. But the sentence cut off at the bottom of Harsanyi's screenshot rather crucially says, we have no evidence that Iran or Hezbollah was aware of the planning for what later became the 9-11 attack. Do you think that matters? Because it's the half-truth that makes it halfway around the world before the rest of the truth is even considered, if it's considered at all. Harsanyi admits the report says absolutely nothing about Soleimani, but he argues that Pence was mostly right, pointing out that Pence did not say Iran knew these men would be the hijackers, merely that it allowed them passage. So let's think about what's going on here. Pence is trying to convince us that Soleimani deserved to die, that it was necessary for the U.S. to kill him, which will also mean that if Iran retaliates violently, that violence will be because Iran is an aggressive power rather than because the U.S. just committed an unprovoked atrocity against one of its leaders, dropping a bomb on a popular Iranian leader. 
So Pence wants to link Soleimani in your mind with 9-11 in order to get your blood boiling the same way you might have felt in 2001 as you watched the Twin Towers fall. There is no evidence that either Iran or Soleimani tried to help these men do 9-11. Harsanyi says Pence does not technically allege this, but he doesn't have to. What impression are, going to, are people going to get from helped the hijackers? Pence hopes you'll conflate Soleimani and Iran as one entity and then assume if Iran ever aided these men in any way, it basically did 9-11, even if it didn't have any clue that was what they were going to do. Now, this brings us to number two. Do not be bullied into accepting simple-minded sloganeering. Let's say that long before Ted Kaczynski began sending bombs through the mail, you once rented him an apartment. This was pure coincidence. Back then, he was just a Berkeley professor. You did not know he would turn out to be the Unabomber. It is, however, possible for me to say and claim, and I'm not technically lying, that you housed and materially aided the Unabomber. He says a friend of mine once sold his house to the guy who turned out to be the Green River Killer. So this kind of situation does happen. Of course, it is incredibly dishonest of me to characterize what you did that way. You rented an apartment to a stranger, yet I'm implying that you intentionally helped the Unabomber knowing he was the Unabomber. In sane times, people would see me as the duplicitous one. But the lead up to war is often not a sane time. And these distinctions can get lost. In the Pence claim about Afghanistan for it to have any relevance to Soleimani, it would be critical to know, assuming the 9-11 Commission report is accurate, whether Iran actually could have known what the men it allowed to pass would ultimately do, and whether Soleimani was involved. But that would involve thinking, and war fever thrives on emotion rather than thought. Now, there are all kinds of ways you can bully people into accepting idiocy. Consider, for example, the statement, Nathan Robinson thinks it's good to help terrorists who murder civilians. I've seen a lot of this kind of retort on Facebook here lately. This is a way in which this is actually sort of true. I think lawyers who aid those accused of terrible crimes do important work. If we are simple-minded and manipulative, we can call that thinking it's good to help terrorists. And during periods of war fever, that's exactly what it will be called. There's a kind of cheap sophistry that becomes ubiquitous. And he gives some examples here. I don't think Osama bin Laden should have been killed without an attempt to apprehend him. Oh, so you think it's good that Osama bin Laden was alive. I think Iraqis were justified in resisting the U.S. invasion with force. So you're saying it's good when U.S. soldiers die. I do not believe killing other countries' generals during peacetime is acceptable. So you believe terrorists should be allowed to operate with impunity. Now, he says, I remember all this BS from my high school years, opposing the invasion of Iraq meant loving Saddam Hussein and hating America. Thinking 9-11 was the predictable consequence of U.S. actions meant believing 9-11 was justified. Of course, rational discussion can expose these as completely unfair mischaracterizations. But every time war fever whips up, rational discussion becomes almost impossible. In World War I, if you opposed the draft, you were undermining your country in a time of war. During Vietnam, if you believed the North Vietnamese had a more just case, you were a communist traitor who endorsed every atrocity committed in the name of Ho Chi Minh. And if you thought John McCain shouldn't have been bombing civilians in the first place, then you clearly believed he should have been tortured and you hated America. If you oppose assassinating Soleimani, you must love terrorists will be repeated on Fox News and possibly even on MSNBC. 
Nationalism advocate Yoram Hazani says there's something wrong with those who don't feel shame when our country is shamed. Presumably those who don't feel wounded pride when America is emasculated by our enemies who are weak and pitiful. We should refuse to put up with those kinds of cheap cheap slurs or even to let those who deploy them place the burden on, of proof on us to refute them. He says, remember, in 2004, Democrats worried that they did appear unpatriotic, so they ran a decorated war veteran, John Kerry, for president. That didn't work. I got some more from this article I want to share with you, the other side of news. I'll also open up the phone lines, but I think these are some things worth considering. I hope you find them useful. Whether you agree or not, they may still be useful. We'll be back after these messages. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, thanks for joining us. This is the Loving Liberty Show with uh, yours truly, Brian Hyde. And a shout out to our friends on KTALK 1640 AM. So I'm sharing an article from CurrentAffairs.org about how to avoid swallowing war propaganda. And this is not really super complicated stuff, but it does take some effort, which is why most people won't do it. They'll follow the path of least resistance and just kind of wet a finger, stick it up in the wind. Which way is the wind blowing? And go with the crowd, because that seems to be the popular position. But if you can remember a couple of basic rules about war propaganda, starting with things are not true because a government official says them, and don't be bullied into accepting simple-minded sloganeering, it'll go a long way. Now, one of the other things you're going to want to do is scrutinize the arguments. Back to the article, it says, here's Mike Pence again. Suleimani provided advanced, deadly, explosively formed projectiles, advanced weaponry, weaponry, training, and guidance to Iraqi insurgents used to conduct attack, conduct attacks on U.S. and coalition forces directly responsible for the death of 603 U.S. service members along with thousands of wounded. Now, the author says, I'm going to say something that is going to sound controversial if you buy into the kind of simple-minded logic we just discussed. Saying that someone was responsible for the deaths of U.S. service members does not in and of itself tell us anything about whether what they did was right or wrong. In fact, in order to believe it did, we would have to believe that the United States is automatically right and that countries opposing the United States are automatically wrong. That is indeed the logic that many nationalists in this country follow. Remember when the U.S. shot down an Iranian civilian airliner, causing hundreds of deaths? This was in July of 1988. George H.W. Bush said that he would never apologize for America, no matter what the facts were. Well, what if America did something wrong? That was irrelevant, or rather impossible, to, because to Bush, a thing was right because America did it, even if that thing was the mass murder of Iranian civilians. By the way, that is nationalism in a nutshell. My country, right or wrong, as opposed to my country, may she always be right. Because at least that one has the humility of admitting that uh, perhaps she could get off track. One of the major justifications for murdering Soleimani is that he caused the death of U.S. soldiers. He was thus an aggressor and could or should have been killed. See, this is where people like Pence want you to end your inquiry. But let us remember where those soldiers were. Were they in Miami? No, they were in Iraq. Why were they in Iraq? 
because we illegally invaded and seized a country. Now we can debate whether, one, there is actually sufficient evidence of Soleimani's direct involvement, and two, whether these acts of violence can be justified. But to say that Soleimani has American blood on his hands is to say nothing at all without an examination of whether the United States was in the right. We have to think clearly in examining the arguments that are being made. Here's the Atlantic's George Packer on the execution. There was a case for killing Major General Qasem Soleimani for two decades as the commander of the Revolutionary Guard Quds Force. He executed Iran's long game of strategic depth in the Middle East, arming and guiding proxy militias in Lebanon and Iraq that became stronger than either state, giving Bashar al-Assad essential support to win the Syrian civil war at the cost of half a million lives waging a proxy war in Yemen against the hated Saudis and repeatedly testing America and its allies with military actions around the region for which Iran never seemed to pay a military price, End quote. Now, the article goes on to discuss whether this case is outweighed by the pragmatic case for killing him. But wait, let's dwell on this. Does this constitute a case for killing him? He assisted Bashar al-Assad. OK, but presumably then killing Assad would have been justified, too. The rule here is the rule here that our government is allowed unilaterally to execute the officials of other governments who are responsible for many deaths. Are we the only ones who can do this? Can any government claim the right? He assisted Yemen in its fight against the hated Saudis. But is Saudi Arabia being hated for good reason? It's not enough to say someone committed violence without analyzing the underlying justice of the party's relative claims. Moreover, assumptions are made that if you can prove somebody committed a heinous act, what Trump did is justified. But that doesn't follow unless we throw all law out the window and extrajudicial punishment is suddenly acceptable. Showing that Soleimani was a war criminal doesn't prove that you can unilaterally kill him with a drone. Henry Kissinger is a war criminal. So is George W. Bush. But they should be captured and tried in a court, not bombed from the sky. The argument that Soleimani was planning imminent attacks is relevant to whether you can stop him with violence and requires persuasive proof. But mere allegations of murderous past acts do not show that extrajudicial killings are legitimate. And the author says it's very easy to come up with superficially persuasive arguments that can justify just about anything. The job of an intelligent populace is to see whether those arguments can actually withstand scrutiny. Next, he recommends keep the focus on what matters. And he starts with a couple of quotes here. The main question about the strike isn't moral or even legal. It's strategic. That's from The Atlantic. New York Times said the real question to ask about the American drone attack that killed Major General Qasem Soleimani was not whether it was justified, but whether it was wise. And then you have Elizabeth Warren, who said, I think that the question we ought to focus on is why now? Why not a month ago and why not a month from now? What can you take from these three different quotes? Well, they're going to try to define the debate for you. Leaving aside the moral questions, is this good strategy? And then you find yourself arguing on those terms. No, it was bad strategy. It will put our personnel in harm's way without noticing that you're implicitly accepting the sociopathic logic that says America's interests are the only ones in the world that matter. This is how debates about Vietnam went. They were rarely about whether our actions were good for Vietnamese people but about whether they were good or bad for us, whether we were squandering U.S. resources and troops in a fruitless mistake, 
The people of this country still do not understand the kind of carnage we inflicted on Vietnam because our debates tend to be about whether things we do are strategically prudent rather than whether they are just. And just as a quick aside, this is where I'm finding myself crosswise with a number of people who I'm very dear friends with on Facebook. And I'm getting the predict. What are you, a Democrat, Brian? What are you, a terrorist lover? Because I'm not debating about the strategic uh, value of was this the right thing to do strategically or not. I'm questioning, is it is it ever right to engage in preemptive war? Is it ever right to preemptively kill your neighbor because you think he might someday not just pop off at you and you know be a loudmouth, but he might actually try to harm you? There's a moral consideration here. And the longer I live, the more I start to understand. It's the moral considerations that count. When you reach the end of your life, your conscience will be focused on the moral considerations that you faced through your life. Not did you strategically get everything done that you wanted to do, whether it was right or whether it was wrong. If you don't believe me, I would encourage you to grab a copy of Leonard Reed's Conscience on the Battlefield. It's a, an imaginary conversation between a dying soldier and his conscience. And it's a very powerful bit of uh, food for thought. What really matters? So in this case, there will be plenty of attempts to distract us. They'll call things like, uh, oh, they'll say, well, it's, it's just a, it's a blunder. That's what the Atlantic calls the strike. It was a blunder, shifting the discussion to be about the wisdom of the killing rather than whether it is a choice our country is even permitted to make. Blunder essentially assumes that we're allowed to do these things, and the only question is whether it's good for us. Now, there will be plenty of attempts to distract you with irrelevant issues. We'll spend more time talking about whether Trump followed the right process for war or whether he handled the rollout correctly or less about whether the and less about whether the underlying action itself is correct. Yeah, people like Ben Shapiro saying things like Barack Obama routinely droned terrorists abroad, including American citizens who presented far less of a threat to Americans and American interests than Soleimani. So spare me the hysterics about assassination, end quote. Well, in order for this to have any bearing on anything, you have to be someone who defends what Obama did. If you are, on the other hand, someone who believes that Obama, too, assassinated people without due process, which he did, then Shapiro has approved exactly nothing about whether Trump's actions were legitimate. Note, too, the presumption that threatening America's interests can get you killed, a standard we would not want any other country using, but we're happy to use for ourselves. All right, we are coming up on our break here. I see the phone ringing. The phone's actually been ringing throughout, so I assume this may be hitting a few nerves. I will be back to take some calls. I've got a couple more things here to share from this article. I will post this in the show notes, too, in the hopes that you take the time to look at it for yourself. The key here is not to establish once and for all that Donald Trump was wrong or that, you know, American foreign policy is wrong. It's to help see through the propaganda that would otherwise have us just automatically accept that it's right without ever questioning it that's dangerous and it's wrong and it's exactly the kind of thinking that has led to some of the biggest atrocities in human history people who went along with and gave their consent to things that had they really thought and reasoned it out they might have at least had a few second thoughts and probably would have questioned 
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I've spent almost the entire hour on this article by Nathan Robinson, How to Avoid Swallowing War Propaganda. And there's some more great stuff I'm going to get to in a few moments. Let's open up the phone. So 801-331-8113. I want to say hello to Mind Cleaner. Hi, welcome to the show. Hello, Brian. I get a sense that you have your finger on the pulse of the problem, but the problem is not easy to describe and own up to. Uh, We talk about the corruption, the pathological behavior of politicians. And this would imply, unintentionally imply, that the rest of us are moral and not corrupt and not pathological. But in reality, the politicians are part of our society. They are people, and we are people, and so they are born and rise out of us as a society. Would you agree with this? Uh, Yes, that makes sense. Yeah, it sure does. And so you said it before, um, and I expected you to concur with me because you said before that first we clean up our own lives. But how does a you know you have to you have to wonder how does a person clean up their own lives if they are not even admitting to themselves of their own corruption, and if they're not willing to see their own corruption, then it's probably difficult for them to see the corruption in others. But we are blaming them all of all of the time. We're always blaming the politicians like they're doing this to us, and when we are all innocent. But in reality, I think the politicians understand that we're, we're not innocent. They understand that we're guilty. They understand that we, too, are corrupt and pathological. Let me give, give you an example. Like if you go up, because you talked about how do we recognize the propaganda, the, the, the falsity, the falsity programming, the programming of falsity, the false beliefs that they, they intentionally indoctrinate us to believe. If you go up to a court system, like go over to one of your district courts and just stand in the parking lot of the building, and it says on the building, justice courts. That's what it says. Right. But if you know anything about courts, you would realize that justice is secondary. Justice is actually secondary. And then what about the propaganda? And and people wouldn't understand what I just said, because most people do not read law books. They do not visit law cases. They do not read the, the documents that are written in law cases. They do not investigate the evidence. They just wait for the news to come out. So most people are not trained in understanding the law. Now, the law is supposed to be the highest ethics in the land. It's right, the higher standard. Like we have corruption. We accept that societies always have a certain degree of corruption. But in courts, that's where this, it should stop. The standard is higher in the courts. So we cannot have corruption in the courts because if you have that, then you don't have capitalism because capitalism, the first pillar of capitalism is the, is the, the ethics of, of redress for grievances. But yet... And, and, and we, we think, we, we talk about lawyers as, as if these are the highest ethical people that we have, the most ethical people that we have, <laughs> yeah. uh, and yet they are the most unethical people that, that we have. And, and we know this because they call it adversarial. So why should it be adversarial? Why you got, you got to start asking these questions. Why must it be adversarial? Then you get a guilty client, you get a guilty person, and that lawyer, his duty is to defend this person and try to get them to go free and get paid to do it, thereby sharing in the booty, in a sense. So he's licensed to share in the criminal act, to defend this person and keep the innocent person who is a victim to keep that person a victim. That becomes the game. Now, that's the game that's afoot. Now, if you want to go in, like, not all lawsuits will a lawyer take because there's not enough money, but if a person wants justice, they have to go in pro se. They have to go in and represent themselves. And then they say, he who represents himself has a full for a Right, right. Ask yourself... If you're going into a court of justice, why should you ever be made a fool in a court of justice? Why would the court not be 
prepared such that the truth will all the truth will come out that everybody's trying to get to the truth so that the victim can be remedied why would you ever need to be fooled that that implies that there's trickery and foolishness and deceit and dishonesty and further pathological behavior in the courtroom itself and if you have pathological behavior in the courtroom and you do I've been involved in the court I've done a lot of paralegal work I've done several cases if you are if you know anything about these courts you will understand that this country is broken and you have selective prosecution and selective adjudication and they are just as pathological as anybody and we too are pathological you have lying in business cheating and realtor real estate is one of the most corrupt industries and yet it's never talked about it, and, it, and there's there's no oversight and yet there's this pretense of oversight in real estate and you could you could just keep going through one thing to the next thing like how about storage companies storage companies offer security but yet they don't really have security uh, and if you know anything about storage companies, you'll see that, well, they have an alarm system, but all it does is alert them in the office. And if they're sleeping or away, nobody gets notified. Half of them will never, the systems will never call the police and protect your storage, and yet they represent that they have security. And then when you go in there, they give you a contract that they're not liable for the damages that are caused to you, yet they're misrepresenting wow. themselves as being secure. So you, you just keep going through industry after industry. You start seeing that we are a corrupt society. And when you say, and you said it today, clean up our own act i'm telling you you are so so right because it starts with us but then how do you go beyond yourself how do you live morally in an immoral society that is warring upon you that is scamming you deceiving you? how do you prosper in a society that is trying to make you broke and homeless by always deceiving you and cheating you and lying to you how do you survive in that dang that's something i think uh, a lot of us are are learning as we go but it feels that way. I think you're, you've ac you have accurately put things into perspective in, in a way that I greatly admire. And I, I'm going to stop you here because I, I want to get the last bit of this article. But I hope you and I can talk again because I, I really enjoyed your comments. I enjoy you as well very much. And I appreciate you. Bye okay. for now. Thank you so much. That was good. This is awesome. Share this podcast. Make sure other people get a chance to hear what that gentleman just said. Whew. All right couple other thoughts here. This is from the article from Nathan Robinson about how to avoid swallowing war propaganda. I really love this one, too. This is this is such a great exercise. Imagine how everything would sound if the other side said it. If you're going to understand the world clearly, he says you have to kill your nationalistic emotions. And an excellent way to do this is to try to imagine if all the facts were reversed. If Iraq had invaded the United States and U.S. militias violently resisted, would it constitute aggression for those militias to kill Iraqi soldiers? If Britain funded those U.S. militias and Iraq killed the head of the British military with a drone strike, would that constitute stopping a terrorist? Of course, in that situation, the Iraqi government would certainly spin it that way because governments call everyone who opposes them terrorists. But rationality requires us not just to examine whether violence has been committed, in other words, whether Soleimani ordered attacks, but what the full historical context of that violence is and who truly deserves the terrorist label? So is there anything Soleimani did that hasn't also been done by the CIA? Remember that we actually engineered the overthrow of the Iranian government within living people's lifetimes. It was 1953. Would an Iranian have been justified in assassinating the head of the CIA? Nathan Robinson says, I doubt there are many Americans who think they would. I think most Americans would consider this terrorism. But this is because terrorism is a word that, by definition, cannot apply to things we do. 
and only applies to the things others do. When you start to actually reverse the situations in your mind and see how things look from the other side, you start to fully grasp just how crude and irrational so much propaganda is. He also warns, watch out for euphemisms. It was not an assassination. That's Noah Rothman, conservative commentator. And then you have Michael Bloomberg. That's an outrageous thing to say. Nobody that I know of would think that we did something wrong in getting the general. This is uh, Michael Bloomberg correcting Bernie Sanders on his claim that it was an assassination. Now, remember, our access to much of the world is through language alone. We only see a tiny sliver of the world with our own eyes. Much of the rest of it has to be described in words or shown to us through images. And that means it's very easy to manipulate our perceptions. If you control the flow of information, you can completely alter someone's understanding of the things they can't see firsthand. Euphemistic language is always used to cover atrocities. Even the Nazis did not say they were mass-murdering innocent civilians. They said they were defending themselves from subversive elements, guaranteeing sufficient living space for their people, purifying their culture, etc., well, when the United States commits murder, it does not say it's committing murder. It says it's engaging in a stabilization program and restoring democratic rule. See, assassination sounds bad. It sounds like something illegitimate, something that would call into question the goodness of the United States, even if the person being assassinated can be argued to have deserved it. So Rothman and Bloomberg will not even admit that what the U.S. did here was an assassination, even though we literally targeted a high official from a sovereign country and dropped a bomb on him. Instead, this is neutralization. Now, those of us who want to resist marches to war need to insist on calling things exactly what they are and refuse to allow the country to slide into the use of language that conceals the reality of our actions. Another thing he recommends, remember what people were saying five minutes ago. In other words, how many people on January 2nd were like, Suleimani, I don't know who that is. But boy, when he was blown up the next day, oh, yeah, that's the most dangerous guy in the world. Where did they get that information? They were propagandized. <laughs> and uh, look, none of us is, is immune to this. I'm as susceptible as anybody else. I have made a conscious decision, though. I'm not going down without a fight. I will own my worldview. I will take responsibility for it. And if that means I've got to do some digging and homework, so be it. I'm not going to ask others to do what I'm not willing to do myself. Watch out for the war propaganda. I suspect there's more coming. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 